This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mass Bay Guides. Mass Bay Guides is our family-run charter fishing fleet that's based out of Situate, Massachusetts. We've been providing anglers with the ultimate fishing adventure for over 20 years. Whether you're looking to put together a multi-boat corporate fishing trip, a trip for your family, or you're an avid angler looking to catch a giant bluefin tuna, our crew will do anything it takes to make sure you and your friends and your family have a great day on the water. To book a trip with us, please visit the Mass Bay Guides website, www.massbayguides.com. You can search prices, trip information, and get the latest reports and links to our social media pages there. You can also find us directly on Facebook and Instagram and just search Mass Bay Guides. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Costa Sunglasses. If you didn't know already, Costa makes the best fishing sunglasses in the game as far as we're concerned. They've been the only sunglasses that Taylor and I have worn for the last decade. The honest, honest truth. That's all we've worn for, for the last 10 years um, of our fishing career. Whether you go with uh, the blue mirror lenses for your bright, clear days offshore, we use those a lot for the canyons or you decide on the green mirror lenses for inshore shallow water applications, you really can't go wrong with, with any of the lens colors that contain their, their 580 color enhancing polarized lens technology. All of the frames are high performance, high quality. Personally, I'm a big fan of the Fantails. I don't have a super big head. They're a medium frame fit. They've been my go-to frame for the last 10 years. Um, I have them in three different lens colors, blue mirror, green mirror and the new sunrise silver, which has been awesome on overcast days, which anyone who tuna fishes knows those are the days that we dream about, but those have been, those have been great. That new color lens has been awesome. If, uh, if you visit costadelmar.com, you can see all of the products they have to offer and pick yourself up a pair. Costa sunglasses, see what's out there. This episode is also brought to you by deep. New England born and bred, Deep is inspired by the fit of the skate and surf retail world, anchored in the technical aspects of the outdoor and offshore fishing apparel market. Deep designs clothes that bring comfort in the elements and also at the bar and restaurant. If you visit shopdeep.com and use the promo code CBROS35, that's with a capital S E A B R O S 35, you'll get 35% off your next order. Our newest sponsor to the podcast is LT Marine Products. Since 2011, LT Marine has been designing and developing innovative, unique, and high-quality American-made sport fishing equipment. Taylor and I have known the crew at LT since they started. Chris is a great guy. Uh, We've been using every single piece of equipment um, that he's he's made over the last several years. his rod holders are extremely heavy duty and high quality. He has the machining equipment to be able to put your boat name on the face plates um, and do other custom work as well, which is pretty cool. Um, and recently, over the last couple of years, we've worked with him to develop some new products that have actually been very popular amongst the the Northeast um Northeast fishermen, specifically offshore and uh, and tuna fishermen. So two of those products have been his uh, his swim hook for if you're harvesting a big big giant tuna, um, 
you know, you want to take care of that fish as, as best you can prior to bringing him on board. And part of that process is after the fight, swimming the fish, you know, for a certain amount of time, kind of depending on the health of the fish and, and how the fight went, but usually ends up being around an hour to get all the lactic acid out of the muscles and, and give a, a better product at the end of the day when we, when we sell our, when we sell our fish. So we helped him design a, an affordable swim hook to be able to tow the fish behind the boat at a low speed and, and accomplish that goal. So, um, that was a pretty cool product that we, that we collaborated on. And another one is, uh, the new LT Marine, uh, release hook. We've been doing a lot of release fishing for giants uh, over the last couple of years with the way that the quota, the quota has been open and closed. So we've really had a need for a way to properly revive these fish and get them back into, uh, into good health upon release. So um, if you go on the LT Marine website, you can see the release hook there. Uh, you can also go on our Instagram, Facebook, and see how we have it rigged. But it's a it's a tool that we've implemented um, into our our process aboard our boats, and and it um, it makes releasing fish a lot safer for the crew, a lot better for the fish, and um, it's a really high quality product. Um, we used it all season, never had a problem, never broke it. So definitely check out that new that new release hook um, from LT. Um, or if you want to see any of Chris's products, uh, you can visit ltmarineproducts.com or check him out on Facebook and Instagram. Our next sponsor is Black Oak LED. Black Oak LED manufactures high-quality LED lighting at a reasonable price for many different industries, including hunting, fishing, military, and tactical. If you're looking to upgrade the cockpit lights, spotlights, under gunnel lights, underwater lights on your boat, uh, make sure you check out Black Oak LED at www.blackoakled.com or at Black Oak LED on Instagram. Uh, Taylor and I just purchased the 360 Marine LED light bar kit uh, with the 30-inch light bar uh, for the new um, the new Line Shy. It's the name of our new center console that will be running um, starting next season. So. That kit includes a 30-inch light bar, like I said, and then four flood combos uh, that we're going to kind of spread out evenly across the T-top to um, to illuminate the deck and um, help us get bait on, in low-light conditions. Uh, all that for around 1000 bucks. It's a great price point, awesome product, um, and they have a lifetime warranty. If you need lights and want to go with Black Oak, please make sure you use our promo code GIANTBLUEFIN. Uh, that's all one word, capital G, for 20% off your order. Our guest on this episode of the podcast has been telling stories of wildlife and nature to global audiences for over two decades. He has done this through his many celebrated television series on ABC, NBC, Travel Channel, Food Network, Discovery Channel, and Animal Planet. He's been awarded with three Emmys and the top broadcast industry awards for his work on television. His very first TV series was wildly successful, Going Wild on Disney Channel. Our guest was also the creator and co-presenter of CNN's documentary, Planet in Peril, hosted alongside Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta. Currently, he is the executive producer and host of ABC's Ocean Treks and is the executive producer and presenter for the screen film 
Expedition Chesapeake, and the narrator for David Attenborough's Galapagos Nature's Wonderland. During the Gulf oil spill, our guest served as an environmental correspondent for both CBS and NBC News. In April 2020, he created and produced the critically acclaimed TV series Alaska Animal Rescue for Nat Geo Wild, now in its second season. Our guest is a leader in conservation, recognized through his work as a TV host, producer, journalist, author, explorer, and wildlife biologist. Most of all, he's a passionate outdoorsman with a great sense of humor, who we've had the pleasure of fishing with many times in recent years. Without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Jeff Corwin. Welcome to the Seabros Fishing Podcast. Okay, look, she plays one of those superhero things. Oh, okay. She was in the movie The Room. She won an Academy Award for. You probably didn't see it. No, I don't think I saw that it's one. It's about a woman who's locked in a room for like 10 years and raises a kid and escapes. And sounds interesting, but frightening at the same it time. Sounds like it <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds like my childhood. Sounds like what OG did to us. Yeah. Except um, the room was a cockpit. <laughs> or just a, glo- a glove compartment of a center console. He chained us in there. Uh, so we literally went to the most random ideas of topics to talk to you about. If you could maybe give us like a level between a level of one and 10, maybe a five in detail on where you grew up, how you became so passionate about the outdoors, how you got into fishing, hunting, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So I grew up in Norwell, Massachusetts, and I've lived in the South Shore my entire life. And as you guys know, I live right on the river and the ocean, and I'm a passionate outdoorsman. I love to fish, and um, I love being connected to nature, and uh, conservation and wildlife biology is a big part of my life. I started my first TV series was back over 25 years ago, which is kind of terrifying to me. And that was a series. still young. I was so young. I look at pictures. I was so young and innocent. Now I'm jaded and broken but and greedy. And, uh, but, you know, with that first series, which was on Disney, it was called, uh, what was it? It was called uh, Going Wild. And it was I awesome. I used to watch it. Yeah, it was, that series was my dream series to make when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Yeah. And the middle of the swamps of the South shore pretending I was on, you know, <laughs> look Marlon Perkins. Right. Um, so, and in the last quarter of a century, uh, I've had probably 12 different TV series. My current series is ocean treks and ABC. I'm actually launching a new series, uh, that I hope to bring to television this fall, a national series it was all based on new England, That's new England, cool. wildlife, new England adventure. But I love the idea that in the 21st century and the age of all this incredible technology that we have access to resources that pioneers would have. I love the idea that I can go in my backyard and dig for clams, catch a striper. I can, you know, crawl into a tree stand during deer season and actually get resources. And as you guys know, we very much eat these resources. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what we fish, what we grow in our garden, the bees that I do, all of that, which is a tremendous amount of investment in a good year is about 75 to 80% of what we consume. 
So, I mean, That's to incredible. think you can do that now and, and the world we live in is, you know, pretty amazing to yeah, me. Yeah, it's impressive. We've been able to enjoy the fruits of your labor many a times, mm-hmm. which has been great. Elk pot, elk shepherd's pie. That was probably one of my favorites. Although that, that deer that we had. Venison, Venison satay. satay. I missed that. Yep. I missed that. Dude, uh, it was amazing. I almost got sick because I ate so much of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I probably ate three quarters of what he brought to the house. It could have been the Lyme's disease. It tested positive. So what, um, how's it been with, you know, COVID and how's that changed your, your plan and filming and traveling over the last year? Well, across the industry, it completely shut the industry down. Yeah. So projects that were greenlit at best were put on hold. A lot of projects for everybody got canceled. Series, time tested, high rated series, backburnered. And it's like a, like the restaurant that you would have to wait two hours for to get a table on a Saturday night. They'll be lucky if they open the doors this summer. Wow. It, 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 that impact that COVID has had on the industry, especially for me, where one of my series is sponsored by the travel industry yep. is an international series. You couldn't ask for a more perfect storm. And even series that there are some series that I produce and create that I don't host, which is something I really enjoy the challenge of. I have a series on Nat Geo Wild called Alaska Animal Rescue. We could not even, I couldn't even go to the production of my own series that I helped cultivate the stories with my partner, Patrick. We couldn't go because of the intense quarantine requirements would mean I would spend minimally a month inside. And, and it was just wasn't worth the financial yeah. loss and all that stuff. So COVID has uh, my people who, you know, I do a lot of speeches, all those speeches, 90% of them were canceled. And the ones that weren't canceled um, became virtual speeches. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, I mean, you... It, but on the other side of it, you know, lucky, lucky for us, we're, we're pretty smart in the way we've managed our lives. It, we, we took this as kind of a major blip in the radar screen. We're starting to see things open up. Um, series that I, was, I, I had been working on that kind of, was like, there was no sense of working on them because you know you're not going to go anywhere within a year. Right. Yeah. So you just you just backburn. I'm not crying. I swear to God, I just. So friggin' dry in here. God, can't your father just get a humidifier? I wish. That's how he became old, Greg. Uh, not enough that's humidity. Why so many but um, it's so it's been a pretty rude, tough reality check. But like everybody else, I know. Like, I was literally speaking to a very well-known actor, Broadway and film and TV actor, and he's like, has nothing to do. So you know you're not the only one. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, look how your industry was impacted in the very beginning. Immediately. Immediately. You were only allowed to take out relatives. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Quote-unquote relatives. Yeah. Exactly. Um, But the other side of it is, I said, this is going to be a great time. When can I, when have I got a whole summer to fish every day? Right. I fished and I dived every day. 
I collected. I don't know how you do you know, driving I, every day. It's ev- so tough. You know, Especially in New England. Yeah. Well, well I love it. Um, I think, and and our and because everyone's so scared of white sharks now, you have the whole thing to yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. So, um, in that sense, I'm. It was just remarkable to me. A year ago, or whatever it was, at this time before you know pre-COVID, I went to 22 countries. I did a couple of million miles. This year during COVID, I've been in a plane once. That's crazy. I mean, talk about life changing. Life changing. But you've yeah. been able to chill at the house. Is it, is yeah, it, it's, enjoy the, it was. Enjoy it's been great. Enjoy the I, there's a lot of things labor. I found, including the 30 pounds I lost before <laughs> COVID, which I'm now working my butt off to get off. Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, you know, gained the weight and lost probably half my wine cellar. So. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. You do enjoy a glass of wine now and again. I do like every now and again. That wine you made. Are you still making wine? I'm not. I did not make wine this year, but uh, we've made wine in the past. Um, It's very hard to grow grapes and get enough juice and have it be good quality juice. Locally, just because of the weather and everything. It's just the weather. You know, New England is not known for producing an incredible (laughs) Cabernet. (laughs) Um, Uh, you know, a Concord grape does not deliver a good glass. Concord grape does not a good bottle of wine make, right. you know. Damn good jelly, though. It makes great jelly great and jelly. grape juice. Jeff's wine has a hint of low tide to it. A hint. Yeah. They, call it, they call it foxiness. Yeah. Uh, little neck wine. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the diving piece. What's the craziest thing you've seen in New England diving? Well, I think what's been pretty cool about any sort of outdoor water activity off New England, whether it's fishing or diving, is that in some ways our waters are healthier than they've been in 40, 50 years. Yep. So the clarity of the water, there's some days out there. It's like, this looks tropical. Last year was tropical. The visibility was extraordinary. Um, So in some ways despite all the challenges we do face with our natural resources, despite the impact of climate change, which we're seeing, we see that with uh, lobsters, the way they're being, they're changing because of the impact of climate change. We're seeing the presence of sea turtles. I don't know how many sea turtles you guys have seen. I see sea turtles all the time now in the mouth of the river. Really? I saw a green turtle in the mouth of the river. That's cool. All the mola molas that are coming in, tuna that are coming into shore. Uh, my, I had a, 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 my, a driver who was taking me home one time from the airport said, oh my gosh, there were all these whales in front of your house. I'm like, oh, sure. <laughs> Have some more bottles of <laughs> vanilla. Have some and, more and then I walked out to the porch and I see these whales right, you know, 600 yards from my back porch. Five or six whales. It was incredible. So, but I think diving... So many cool things. Every once in a while, you come across a giant, giant, giant lobster. And when you're underwater, and I'm not talking like a five pound or a 10, I'm probably talking a 25, 30 pound lobster. It's as big as this table. Which and, is what, five, four, five? Yeah, pounds. I mean, uh, you, you know, you can't keep these, you can't collect them. So you really even can't even touch them. And there's a lot more than people realize. And when you look under and you see like, something bigger than a catcher's mitt 
that's, I mean, that's a that's, that's, that's a cool. dinosaur. It is. Um, saw a, a, a um, ocean pout underwater. You seen an ocean pout? I've caught little ones. Well, those well they get gigantic. Do they really? Huge. They look like a like a wolf eel. Huh. Um, just to tog. Uh, I was diving off of Minot. I love mine. It's my favorite place to dive. Although you won't ever find a lobster there. So don't even bother. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't ever dive Don't there. No, even try. No striped bass and no um, tuna fish either. <laughs> and um, I was diving there with a buddy of mine from California, my cameraman. He was up. He likes to dive. So um, we were diving there. And it was just like out of like a 1950s, like Jacques Cousteau, you know, or 20,000 leagues, all the kelp was really pretty. And there were just teeming schools of wrasse of every size, big to tog. They almost, you know, to tog, they get big. They almost look like mermaids. They're t- mm. It was like, you couldn't, there was so much life happening there. Stripers. So every time you catch and you don't catch a striper, I can't tell you how many times those stripers are there anyways. You just don't see them. You don't mark them, but they're there. Uh, so, you know, nothing like, oh, you know, of course, seals, which I hate. I don't like seeing seals underwater because I always think <laughs> sharks. sharks. <laughs> and this so year. you haven't seen a great white locally. We had one okay. um, shark thing happen. So we were diving. And actually, during our dive, we got approached by the harbor master for Plymouth, who's like, guys, they just, right where you're diving, they just spotted a great white shark. Yep. And uh, we were going to go in. My, I was with my neighbor's son. And uh, he's like, well, what do we do? I'm like, well, we're going to dive anyways. We're not going to not dive because there's a shark. Right. And he says, well, what do we do if there's a shark? I'm like, well, I don't have to un- out-swim right. that shark. I just got to out-swim you. <laughs> right. So, um, and then just then we marked what was just this solid, you know how when you mark a whale, you know it's a oh, whale. It was a solid 12-foot long thing just moving right under our boat. We could see the shadow. We didn't see Finn, but we knew what it was. Yeah. And we went in 10 minutes later, and we had an incredible dive. Yeah. I got the biggest, like, just legal lobster I ever got. Like, literally measured it 10 times underwater, right. and it was the perfect legal-sized lobster. Nice. That's cool. So, And I started scallop diving this year, and that is hard. Where do you do that? Or maybe you don't want to uh, say off, of, off of Marshfield. I mean, you got to have a lot of kunas to do it. It's deep and black How underwater. Deep? 70, 80 feet. They do it in Boston, too. There's actually a really? there you can charter. do it in shallow. Mm, that's you cool. need a lot of current. So off of, um, you know, 10 miles off the Gurnet, yep. there's there. But and it's really about you got to find this exact sort of structure. It's a It's a total hit and miss. You hit him. You you have to you get so many up to send a balloon up. You can't physically carry them up. Wow! But then you get down and you come up with six. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a long, it's a quick, cold dive. Yep, that's cool. Hmm. What about elsewhere? What's been your some of your top places you've you've dove? Cool things you've seen underwater? Well, I, I mean, the great thing about this job and a lot of what I've done. So I had a whole series for five years. It was all in oceans and ocean conservation. In this current series, we do a lot of ocean stuff, not as much as I'd like, but I've dived every major place you can dive from the Arctic to Palau, Seychelles, um, Micronesia, Indonesia, Australia, Hawaii, many times. 
that has been the tough thing over the last few years is how how denuded and how um, compromised a lot of these tropical reef systems are now. And these are places that I have been to before. So last year, I think, no, before last year, a year before last, I was diving off of Hawaii. I have been to Hawaii dozens and dozens. I've probably been to Hawaii 60, 70 times to film shows over 25 years. You gave me a bunch of your tips and tricks when we went. Yeah, and I have a lot of friends there. I also do a lot of free diving too. I love to, in Hawaii, I I free dive and spearfish, and that has been fun to train your body to do a three-minute free dive at you know, I would drown. Not a chance no, I could do that. I would right drown. Now. I think I'd drown after about a minute. <laughs> uh, well, that's the thing is you don't drown after a minute. You drown after four or five minutes because once you teach yourself to get over that um, respiratory reflexive. Then so you don't realize you breath, it. You can actually, so it's like, remember when you're a little kid and you're breathing in a paper bag and you can actually get a lot more out of your lungs than you realize you yeah, can. Yeah. So you can. And once you teach yourself, you have to then, to teach yourself to get over that, you then have to teach yourself it's probably time to breathe soon because you get so distracted. And, and a couple of years ago, I almost had a blackout moment first time. And it really kind of scared me actually. And I was with the, the world's top free diver. So it's like, he saw me, he said, Oh man, you're pretty good from New England. And I'm like, yeah, I've been doing a few years. I'm like, that's pretty good. I was like two minutes. I'm like, and then he went down, he was down there for seven minutes. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> walking on the bottom at a hundred feet. He sees a fish and he's just clouding the fish and he's waiting, looking at his watch. I'm like, Oh my God. Um, but um, what I've noticed is around the world in the last few years is how, really compromised our reefs. Uh, Australia, it's shocking how much of the Great Barrier Reef is no longer thriving. Mm-hmm. And in this area in Hawaii, where, where I had probably dived hundreds of times over many years, I was with this scientist that I'd worked with many times before. And I was like, where are we? And he goes, dude, you've been here so many times. I could not recognize it. Wow. How it was like, literally, you took a color picture and you made it black and white very few fish what's the major cause of that well coral bleaching um coral bleaching is the big problem that's what the corals get stressed from climate change the waters get too warm and they they purge out their their um photosynthetic organs that Hmm. they use organ the organelles like a core and that's it yeah and they but they can't last that way because they're they need that symbiotic relationship between the photosynthesis and the actual you know polyp feeding that they do Hmm. and they lose that ability from the stress and they become white or bleached yeah um and so that is a lot of it is people not being careful people now visit places you know that they see and people overlove things to death. So Hawaii has experienced a lot of tourism damage from people kicking corals, but they also think a big contributor to the destruction of Hawaiian coral reefs, sunblock. Yeah. Hmm. Sunblock, so many companies sunblock, are sunblock. like reef safe sunblock, you know, Pelagic's made it. A bunch of companies have made That's it. That's insane. So yeah. just that many people, what snorkeling and scuba well, diving just comes off in the mil- water. You take a couple of million people, you yeah. put them in, 50 spots right. every over year, and over and over. kicking the coral, touching everything, standing yeah. on it, picking stuff up, getting their sunblock, boat 
fuel, all that stuff contributes. Mm, right. Then throw in climate change, throw in some pollution, and then that's how you destroy a reef. Overfishing has impacted. You know, we are so insulated here in Massachusetts. Like I tell you know people like, oh, you can catch tuna in Massachusetts. I'm like, we have a very abundant, healthy population of tuna. I mean, it it has to be managed and be managed wisely. But if it is, you know, we it is there's a sense of independency of this population from what you might see off the coast of Spain, right, or something like that. Um, but yeah, the reefs are just in trouble, and that to me is kind of, oh wow, there's a that that's a sobering thing to hmm. see. That's interesting. That's, that's scary. It's terrifying. Hopefully they are, I mean, I'm assuming there's all sorts of conservation. Not really. I mean, how do you save that? it? Well, I was filming in Australia again, right before COVID. And what they're resorting to now is they're just collecting specimens and freezing them, freezing their gametes with the hopes of like reintroducing them, them somewhere. I mean, that's kind of like, that's kind of like, Oh, that's a bandaid. Yeah. Well, well, you know, yeah. you've got stage four cancer. Well, what's after that? Mm, nothing. You know, yeah. it's like, so we'll freeze you for the, tw- <laughs> and then someone will wake you up with the cure. Yeah. It's like, well, I'd like something a little bit more grounded, <laughs> uh, a little more accessible. Right. So, I, you know, with some of our environmental challenges, the roller coasters on the tracks and yeah. it's just going to run its course. They're really, I can't think of a reef system that's doing fantastic right now. There are surprises. There are places you go where it's like, oh, wow, this looks really good. Mm. You don't get a lot of those anymore. Hmm. There's some places in, uh, in French Polynesia, um, some remote islands where the diving is spectacular. A few places in the Caribbean, but not many. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like the ultimate canary in the coal mine of what's happening globally to our oceans right wow yeah that's crazy i like sidebars i do too tons of information so another i guess um i guess dovetail into fishing a little bit how has diving influenced your passion for fishing and vice versa like is there one you prefer is there one you learn more from well diving is a lot of work there is this kind of thing you have to psych yourself up for. And there's things you just, your body has to get used to over time. Getting used to cold water. It would be like, I got all this dive equipment like 20 years ago and I dive twice a year. You just, you have to do it every day. It's like, like, it's like jogging. It's like, oh man, this feels good. It's like a part of you. It becomes a part of, it becomes habitual. And once you get that routine down, um, I I don't, you know, I dive for very different reasons than for fishing. And I like them both equally. Um, fishing is, I would say, a little less taxing, mm-hmm. but it certainly requires a lot of work with equipment and mess on your boat and finding fish you know there's a huge hit or miss with fishing literally Mm -hmm. um and i think i've i've developed appreciation for some of the fish you target when 
You're fishing from a boat to see them in their world underwater. Um, you know, a striped bass come out to check you out underwater and hang out with you, wondering if you're going to feed it something. Yeah. It's like, man, there's more going on with this fish than I give it credit that, for. That right? point you made about, you know, diving and the bass are there and you might not always be be catching them as an example, I think is a really good one. You know, th- that's stuff that I know I think about a lot. You know, they're there. It's just what do you have to do to get them, turn them on. to turn them on, you know? And it may not be something that you can do. It may just, they, you know, it's a weather pattern or the tide or yeah. whatever. The stars aren't aligned so that they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. So. Every, time, every time I dive, I see striped bass. Every single dive. And sometimes lots of them, they'll scare you because it's like, whoa, they just yeah, come right. up on you. And, um, and underwater, they're very um, bold um, versus hmm. they may be a little shy, uh, you know, when, when you're trying to fish for them or target them. They're picky. Or picky. And right. it's also places, if you go to places where everybody's going and you kind of get their mid-late season... You know, it's like hitting race point. Everybody's doing this. So when right. I go to race point, I'm like, what are they not doing? Yeah. What can I do that's different? I'm going to try, so, you know, and you start experimenting and, and doing different things. It's like, you know, why is everyone fishing the way my father fished, pulling string and going really slow? It's like, try a different way to target. We chummed a lot last year. There were a lot of days where we couldn't pull them off the bottom, you know, or trolling X-Raps, jigs and... It wasn't very even productive. Live, even live mackerel. Even live mackerel. And we would stop the boat, get on the drift, we marked the pile, and not even wet a line until we had, a, like, you know, a fish in the river, same sort of yeah. thing. Implementing that same thing there. A and quality we, fit. We had to do that a lot this year. And it's always that one freaking boat from Plymouth with, like, <laughs> a thousand people all kind of hanging off. And I'm like, man, I just got here. And it's, like, right on top of you. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to go around you. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah tube and worming around in circles <laughs> i know <laughs> but it uh, i i had good luck on race point this year i dialed it in to exactly where the fish i mean my my um my uh fish finder thing it looks like someone just dropped a, a whole bunch of like sand on it because i just have all these points <laughs> yeah. actually created yeah. you know substrate moving so it's like <laughs> at this exact area i'm like put them in now you just like get it in now uh, and but I did not catch any monsters out there this year. No. A, a lot of fish, a lot of small fish. Um, but yeah, you got to get down to them. I've been sort of like waiting down with a floating weight, getting a live small mac tinker mackerel right down to them. That seemed to be that the, was most definitely the most thing. productive. Yeah. yeah, we did the same thing. We did four. You know, I mean, four rods doing the same thing. It's kind of hard to go out and fish around when I can get fish right in my backyard. Yeah. Every time. You're spoiled. Yeah, I can. <laughs> I've caught not, some tanks out yeah, of that spot. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have too. I mean, I've caught some real monsters out of there. And um, there's just, and I have that dialed in so well that for someone who comes up for a couple of days, I'm like, oh, we're going to go to the this. I'm like, mm, we're, let's, we're going to spend a morning here. My right. little Carolina skiff, and we're just mm-hmm. going to float till I can't push the current anymore. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I used to be like, oh, we're going to wait till the high tide. I have in the Rat River system, it could be flat low. Yeah. You some of the best fish. times of fishing is honestly dead low tide in there. And Sometimes I think some of the bigger trapped. fish are in there too. Yeah, you we've know. had some good tides, even way upriver on low tide. Yeah. You know, 
What other uh, cool questions? I want to go back to what, like, um, you're talking about great white sharks. Yeah, have you had any any you, crazy been, shark encounters? Even that, let's let's broaden it out a little bit. <laughs> what kind of animal attacks have you had? Been bitten, been bitten anything deadly, poisonous? You worked with basically every animal, right? Many, I would part. say every. Well, every major most, animal yeah. that people know about. Um, any animal you'd to want this. to watch on TV, I've right. worked with. Um, <laughs> I would probably say, you know, white sharks I've worked with in California. I've worked in South Africa. I've, I've worked with them all over the world. I've free swam with them. I've caught them and tagged them. I've dived with them. Um, and they are a hairy shark, especially off of South Africa. They just come in and, you know, the probably the craziest thing that ever happened is we're filming off South Africa. And it was called... I, I'm trying to think what they called the bloody alley. Hmm. And it was this stretch, this narrow, you know, thousand yards between two major rocks. And the first seals had to go from this rock to that rock. <laughs> and, the, and that's where these, Dude, that's these something on like a, a PlayStation or Xbox, <laughs> yeah. like Frogger. Oh yeah. To jump across the road. And uh, just a lot more blood. And uh, we went there to document these breaching sharks. So we were like one of the first. This was a series I had on almost 20 years ago. And we documented some of that. We weren't the first to ever film this. But like we were some of the first to get for this series I called had called Corwin's Quest. where We try to break down animal behavior. And we were our goal was to get me in frame with overcranked slow motion breaching shark and i mean we'd get these incredible moments and how you do is you troll this seal mimic it's a it's a big uh it's like a plastic carp carpet black mm-hmm. carpet cut out in the shape of a seal and you, like a squid bar you just yep. pull it on the top and get the it just happened so quickly so i wasn't even thinking i was helping the guy and i pulled it in a shark just hit it and I pulled it out, and there was this huge great white shark tooth, and I went, oh, look at this. The guy went, oh, that's... I went, and we're like, oh, my God. I was like, why did I do that? Oh, my God. Threw back in I just water. threw it. Oh. You know, um, but we had this thing where you would literally see oh, the seal coming and coming and going fast, and you see the fin coming right behind him. I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to happen. And we had this seal actually jump into our boat and just sit in our boat. And, um, and it's like, okay, is the <laughs> shot like, coming? He's like, I don't care. I'll take, you know, these naked monkeys over that <laughs> yeah. shark any day. That's uh, crazy. I That's... think that happened to me. That could have been something I saw on a TV show. I always forget. <laughs> I mix them up now. I think it was us. We were there for a long time. Um, and, uh, I mean, that was, uh, or fill it, filming a great white shark just after killed an elephant seal. So an elephant seal weighs 8,000 pounds. And to see how it is just atomized in minutes. <laughs> and you just come to this, you know, you have to, you have to imagine the amount of blood in an animal that big. And it's just, you know, a cloud. It's like jaws, just a cloud. And it's just gone and there's no evidence anymore. And just how quickly they are. Um, but as far as like, you know, I have not been really super injured by animals. I kind of feel like I'm doing my job wrong if I'm being bitten yeah. right, or being hurt. Uh, 
Early on, like before television, when I was a grad student, I studied snakes and did work on snakes. I did a lot of work with venomous snakes in Central America and eventually got bitten on my foot and almost died by a coral snake. Um, and that was a Herculean effort to get me to the hospital. I had a hike out of the jungle and the British Defense Force sent out a helicopter and I had to climb this helicopter and strapped to the skid to get taken and came within probably half an hour of dying where I got anti-venom. Wow. Um, does but it just coagulate your blood? Or it how does. Do, the, it's a, it's or a, is it thinner? It breaks down your... Well, the hemotoxins do both. They cause your blood to super thin. Mm -hmm. Your blood goes into hypercoagulation mode, then it coagulates, and that's what starts the killing is the clotting. Um, but this is a neurotoxin, hmm. so it degrades your nervous system very, very quickly. But I've never really had... I mean, there's been scary th moments. I remember with Maya, my oldest daughter, when she was like three years old, we were in a... So the most scary things to me have not been animal things. It's been a coup d'etat in Cambodia where you're you're hoping you're not going to get consumed in this, in that the fur of this... Well, let's hear about that. Uh, this <laughs> yes. sounds interesting. This actually well, we goes in line with one of our questions, too. Yeah, I mean, well, we were filming years ago in Cambodia, and Thailand and Cambodia had this major fisticuff over something silly, and it just escalated and escalated. And before you knew it, we, we were getting ready to go to Thailand for another show. Thailand had our passports to get our visas. They burnt down the Thai embassy. Our <laughs> fixer went in, who was Cambodian, and got attacked no, it was Thai, I think. I got attacked and got her leg broken. And they burnt down our hotel. Um, and it, they weren't <laughs> after um, Westerners. They were after people that were Thai. So there was a, a, a Japanese guy at our hotel. And then you see all these Cambodians who are really, like, by nature, a very polite culturally really warm S southeast asian culture is a very warm hospitable generous culture it's one of the most welcoming in the world the food and the way they treat guests is, is pretty amazing except when they're at war <laughs> and then they're pretty good at that when they when it hits the fan yeah um and so you see it, they grab this japanese guy and they're about to just beat him up and he says, I'm not Thai, I'm Japanese. And they're speaking in English. And he goes, well, prove it, speak Japanese. And he just says these words of Japanese. And they went, oh, well, we're very, very sorry. We'll just move on. <laughs> you know, it was just like that. I was like, wow. What? So um, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Uh, and... So I never felt like we were super endangered, although we probably were. Not that people were after us, but that would be the just be caught up in the wrong caught up in the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, I've never felt endangered in Cambodia ever, ex except that kind of thrill of that very quick experience. Um, and I've been back to Cambodia many times since then, and have never had an issue. Um, but um, we were in filming in Nepal when the um, the royal family collapsed and the eldest prince, if I remember correctly, over something, you know, family politics, 
one day had enough, pulled out a machine gun and killed the whole family at the dinner table. What? The whole country collapsed. We were there. It literally, we could, it was like watching, you could physically feel it just collapsing around us. And they went into martial law and we had to get out of that country. So everyone went scrambling to get us out. Because that's when people get in trouble, whether it's in New Orleans or in L.A. It's when there's, when there's chaos. Right. That's when bad people take advantage of opportunity, no matter where you are in the world. Yeah. And they were like, it's like that's when, when the police aren't there and things aren't working. It's like, so they got us out and got us to India. Um, but... It's things like that, being in a plane crash. I've been in a couple of um, emergency landings and met all of them in Alaska. Um, and one of them was with Maya. We were flying in a an otter, which is kind of a really cool uh, pontoon float style plane. They're all vintage planes that they keep up. And so this plane's probably from the 60s, 1960s, mm. which is standard. Right. You could be flying in a 1950s plane, and it's just as good as a plane from now. And it was a windy, stormy day. We were leaving Brooks Falls. We got up. It was a big boom. Smoke. Engine was gone. And he just fell out of the sky. But the nature of the plane, he was able to pretty much land it. So we weren't hurt. But I remember we were going down and we're heading towards the water. And I'm like, well, at least we're landing on the water. And he went, that isn't necessarily great. And I asked him why. He said, because if we land in the water and we don't safely land in the water and we're stuck in the water or you physically go in the water, you could be 50 feet from the shore. You won't make it to the shore. That water is so cold. You won't make it. to, And that your little daughter. So, so. We then had to pretty much camp out and wait for a rescue plane to come get us. We were in a national park. And I remember I had, and we were there filming these giant Kodiak bears. That was the whole focus of the story. And they were everywhere. So Maya had to go to the bathroom. So I put her on my shoulders and we walked through the woods. And We walked 100 yards into the woods. She did her business. And then when I walked back, I looked over every one of my footprints that I just walked was a giant Kodiak bear print, like, you know, bigger than a pie plate on every one of my footprints. So So he's tracking you. Who knows? And you know what? Nine times out of 10, 9.9 times, it's not nefarious. He's just curious or whatever. This is an area where the bears are so focused on salmon and berries and all this stuff you could literally be fishing in a bear is next to you in fact i've had it happen many times where it's called cub dumping where i'll be fly fishing mm-hmm. for like monster you know rainbow trout you actually fish with mice lures that's so cool uh, and you're fly fishing and then i see this big mom brown bear coming with their cubs and she leaves the cubs with you and it's like and the guy said, oh, yeah, that's called cub dumping. And what she's doing is because she does not want them being endangered by a big boar, a big male grizzly. Hmm. So she'll dump them with you thinking you're the babysitter. And, of course, you're not going to take it. You just slide down three, 400 feet. Right. Um, you see bears all the time, and they don't care about you 
at all. Most of the time when stuff happens with bears, it's a sick bear, an old bear, a conditioned bear, something like that. Huh. <laughs> so you've had quite a few encounters. <laughs> bears. Oh, How about bears. Monkeys? Are you scared of gorillas and, and things like that? No, I'm not really scared of them, but yeah. I am aware of what they can do. Right. And also, they we share so many pathogens. Want to be clear, they freak the hell out of me. Really? Oh, I can't handle oh. monkeys. Oh, when you Way a macaque, uh, like a, a macaque that's been eating food from people at a dirty temple somewhere, and then it comes up to you and has no fear of you. I had one come up and bite me right in my kidney. And it hurt. <laughs> and then the person was like, I was just standing by this temple that came right up. I was like, oh my god, it, it really hurt. What's that? What's uh, that scar? Oh, a macaque a bit macaque. my kidney. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and I said to the guy, I'm like, oh my god, should I wear? It? And they said, well, I I think he said like most of them had some sort of like they were like not I forget what it was ninety percent infected by some sort of um, communicable sexually transmitted disease. No I'm like that'll be my excuse. <laughs> it wasn't me, it was the monkey. Oh, god. But um, I, what was it they had? But I didn't get it, thankfully. But um, so, yeah, I mean, any animal that's been fed and conditioned, it's a danger to itself and it's a danger to people. That's why they say, like, a fed bear is a dead bear because eventually that bear will have to be euthanized mm-hmm. because he's going to hurt someone and hurt or get into trouble. Right. It happens all the time. Um, but I've never had, I've had some, it, it's those moments where those, you know, a, a compromised animal. I remember, like, we were tracking lions with the Maasai, uh, just a, a year ago, this really cool project where they um, train these, so that these Maasai people live in the Maasai Mara. They live in, in the environment where they have their bomas, their their livestock. They get, every once in a while, they get killed by predators. Their animals do. So they are constantly battling with hyenas, leopard, and lion. So this group, this conservation group, tried to find a way where they could live together. So they would train members of the community to become lion guardians. They collar the lions, the, the, the apex dominant lions in the area, and they track them so they can say to a ranch, to a, a shepherd, not a rancher, they're shepherds, to say, hey, there's a lion a mile away from you, you need to move. And they do that by reducing the human conflict. Well, we went out with them to film these lines. It was really cool. And like, I'm over here and the guy's like this. And he's like, you know, somewhere there's a lion and I can pick it up. <laughs> and I'm like, and he's like, do, 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 do. And he looks at me and goes, do, 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 do. And I look over and I see these eyes like 50. I'm like, he's right here. Uh, so, and did he, was he stalking you or just No, he was just out? saying, oh crap, it's the guys right. who are going to put a collar on me again or something, whatever <laughs> yeah. it was. And, um, we were actually filming in South Africa once where someone from our camp was eaten by a lion and I mean, completely eaten by the lion. So and that's like... We all watch that show. So that's possible that like the lion will eat an entire person? Well, the group of lions. Oh, the group of them will. Yeah. And I mean, they found just like three inches of shin bone and that was it. And oh sneakers. Oh, my God. And, um, and it was someone 
uh, who actually had worked at the camp. And, you know, you can't, if, if you are in Africa, in places like East Africa, Tanzania, and you are in that part of the world in like a national park, it, and you walk by yourself, the, I think the chances are so high you're going to have a terrifying encounter or maybe even worse. <laughs> it happened, I mean, between elephants and lions and other predators, it just, and he literally took the chance and walked from one camp to the next. Didn't make it. That's terrifying. Absolutely I have a lot of those terrifying. stories. <laughs> yeah. We're at, we were at a camp where a kid had previously, a, a kid from New York, 14-year-old kid, was completely consumed by hyenas. That's a tough way to go. Yeah. It's a horrible way to go. And it's such a rare event. And as I understood it, so we were filming hyenas for this show. So we were filming in Tanzania. We're also, I think, filming in South Africa. I can't remember exactly where. It was 20 years ago um, or around about that time. And we were at this camp where everyone was just very, very on edge because this event had just happened. Um, And so apparently... It was a mom from New York with her like teenage kid. The kid was fascinated by hyenas and his goal was to record with an old fashioned recorder, pre-digital times, record the sound of hyenas. And he wanted his own tent. Now, this is based on secondary conversation. So who knows? There may be some nuances to the story, Mm -hmm. but we were there at this place where it happened and it had been relatively recently. And the young man wanted his own tent and they were like, look, it's very important. We stay together and it's every, if, if everyone does it the right way, it's safe and it'll be an amazing experience. But he wanted his own tent. His mom was like, you know, he's 14, he can have his own tent. And they kept catching him doing things like being risky. And one night he heard the hyenas and he literally stuck his head out with the recorder and the hyena just grabbed him and pulled him. Don't tell me it's all on, all recorded. So, they um, pulled him, and by the time the guards got there, it was four hyenas that went in four different directions with oh him, and there God, was nothing terrible. left. And um, they, he had that. So I heard that story. I was like, that is the, like, the most horrible thing I ever heard. Cut two weeks later, we're filming in Tanzania with like the world's top hyena expert. We're collaring hyenas. My wife Natasha was with me at the time. This was pre-kids. And um, actually, she was pregnant with Maya at the time. Hmm. And um, so we're doing, and I told them this story and they're like, oh yeah, we know all about it. I'm like, how do you know about it? They're like, well, we are, um, we're, we're, we were called in as experts because of the lawsuit I'm like, oh my God, well, how are they going to use you? And as you see, he said, well, he had recorded himself the entire process and we have the recording. We've been analyzing it. So it's like, oh my God. I mean, he wanted to get it recorded and he did. Yeah. Just in a really bad way. It was a horrible thing and I can't, but, but, you know, not to say that he did anything wrong. I mean, he's a kid and kids do all sorts of stuff. Uh, but it's a real world with real predators yeah. and you can follow the rules and it can go south. Um, but like anything, if you're careful and you're safe, 
you know, I've never had a feeling diving off of Massachusetts where it's like, the only thing that have ever has ever scared me diving off Massachusetts has not been a fish or a predator. It's been tide. I've got caught up in some horribly terrifying tide things. Last year, I got caught in that tide that comes off of uh, the Gurnet mm-hmm. and Saquish. It is wild. And um, I literally, I was diving with someone else and it just happened. It was like a windstorm. Things just started being pulled off me. My, my tickle stick snapped in half and I just started rolling and just getting back to the boat or trying to dive the hole in the river. Yeah. Time that wrong with tide, you're in trouble. Wait, what have you seen in there in that spot? In the river, it's, it's dark with a lot of weird-looking mutated lobsters. That <laughs> uh, doesn't surprise me for some reason. It's not a pretty dive. It's often the visibility isn't very good. Yeah. But there's lobsters down there. Um, I've had a couple of girlfriends like that. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. This ad is brought to you by our sponsor, Deep Apparel. If you're looking to gear up for the 2021 fishing and boating season, visiting shopdeep.com is a great place to start. Deep has always had a great assortment of quality fishing apparel products available, and they're releasing a bunch of new items for spring of 2021. Personally, one of the items that that we wear a lot, utilize, is, um, is their fog cutter jacket. It's super lightweight, easy to store when you're not wearing it, you know, rolls up into a really small package. Um, it's a perfect piece of outerwear to own for early and late season fishing here in New England. I know early spring striped bass, I wear it all the time. It's a great mid-layer. So if you don't have one or you haven't seen it, make sure you check out the fog cutter jacket um, at Deep. Another cool direction that Deep is taking is with their new Ecoline apparel products. These items are all made from recycled plastic bottles, and each shirt is actually made with 16 recycled bottles, which is an awesome step towards protecting our oceans. A portion of the proceeds from each of these items goes towards rebuilding shorelines and damaged reefs across the globe. And we always love to see companies like Deep who focus their efforts towards keeping our oceans healthy and keeping future generations of fishermen in mind. Make sure to visit shopdeep.com to see all of the products they have available and make sure you use the promo code CBROS35, capital S, uh, for 35% off your next order. Don't wait to use the promo code. Uh, Once spring apparel, uh, more spring apparel is released um, and they start getting their new line up on the site, that that code is going to get refreshed. So make sure you take advantage of it while it's still valid. Uh, all right, back to the episode. So I can obviously splice this all together. You got to get yourself comfortable there, guy. Way up close. Tight. My lucky towel. Put your mic, like, tilted down towards your mouth a little bit. There you go. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, he's, you can all imagine what old Greg's doing with the mic right now. <laughs> um, you want to make sure he's good with audio? Yeah, I'll double check. So our special guest is OG. Yeah, so interrupting our scheduled programming is, uh, <laughs> is our dad, old Greg, um, which is actually the reason why Jeff is here today. So maybe you guys can explain how we came to know each other. 
How did you get to know my dad? Let's hear from Jeff first, how he met you and, and what happened. No, no, I think you should hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How was how, how well, the Way before the whole <laughs> well, Jeff, ordeal. Jeff chartered me for his dad's birthday, first time we met. Yeah. And then we, uh, he saved my life when he was a little younger. You want to tell him how you saved my life? Yes. So the first time I went, I charted him for my dad's birthday to go catch tuna. And um, it was the worst fishing trip I'd ever had. (laughs) Really? It was. It was. I called him the night before. I'm like, man, it looks like it's going to be really rough tomorrow. (laughs) He's like, oh, it's going to be fine. It'll be right. I'm like, oh, are you sure? So we went out in the Fortuna and it was like the the Andrea Gale. Um, it was the most unperfect fishing storm and it was just rough weather and we, I don't think we caught any fish. My dad got seasick. I'm like, happy birthday, dad. (laughs) So, uh, we came back and, um, then I was Let's like, book him again. <laughs> no, because he no, said, I think if we I don't, offered to take yeah, him he again said, if we don't catch a bet. fish, come back and we'll go back again, which we did. But I think wasn't in between. I started trying to figure it out myself with my little boat. I think it kind of did, but then you came back and then, yeah, yeah. So I, so I, <laughs> I had a little 18 foot seaway. So I went up and bought one tuna rod, which I still have, one squid bar, yeah. and I went out, oh, I could do that. I saw what he did, and I went out and caught a tuna, and I was like... You forgot about the broken outrigger pole you had stuck in your, out, your rod holder. Oh, yeah, I had that too, yeah. And I had, and I mean, totally makeshift band-aid tuna fishing. And, but I, I was like, people were like, what is that little tiny boat doing out at Stellwag? And I'm like... He's got a tuna? <laughs> like, and then you we caught a, you, and you a five-year-old or four-year-old <laughs> or whatever she was at the time. And, uh, um, That's and then, and then like went out with Greg and had a great time and got great tuna and uh, caught cod. And then we were out and, and then you fell overboard. <laughs> 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 and it was pretty terrifying. It was, was October, terrifying. so the water was cold. Wasn't it October? I think it was actually like November Or maybe 5th. November. It was the it's, very end of like commercial season. Yeah, it was November. We yeah. were already done charter fishing. It was swelly, and I forget the name of the mate. Kerry. Kerry. What was it? He actually went Kerry. to school with you, or somewhere in Norwell really? went to school with Well, you. I only spent about four days in that school, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a lot of memory of <laughs> my high school. Um, but... We were out there, and we had had this epic fishing day, coming we back. Way out. We were way out. And coming back, and everyone started to take a nap, and I'm sitting there in the old Fortuna, and Greg is outside, and then I don't know if I was going to read a book. I'm just sitting or about to nap. I'm sitting in the chair, and I'm staring out at through the... Uh, uh, windshield and I just see this flash like that oh is that how you yeah. saw me I didn't realize it was in the windshield <laughs> yeah I just saw this flash and I'm like 
What it was, was probably that? his red sweatshirt going overboard. <laughs> <laughs> it was a flash. And, you know, I don't believe in any premonitions or anything like that, but it was this kind of intuition. You need to look back. And I went, what the hell? And I looked back, and I just see your father going, like, like I'm going up on the, to the flybridge or whatever it was. I just see him like, I'm like, holy crap. He's like, arms in the air, big... <laughs> You know, his big where's Waldo eyeballs bulging, just flying off uh, yeah. the, the, the transom. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He just fell in the water. I see him in the water. He just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> and I wake up um, the mate. What's his name? Carrie. 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 I wake up, Carrie. I'm like, the, the boat's going 50 no, knots. You, didn't you pull it knots. out of gear or something? Oh, oh I'm yeah. pulling everything. Trying to get out of autopilot. <laughs> it's like the orcas. <laughs> and and I, I'm like, Carrie, Carrie, Greg fell over. And he went, he was like, quit your shit. And he's right. Hey, Greg, what's up? And I'm like, no, he fell over. And by the time I get him to, I'm like, I'm serious. He is not in the boat. He's in the ocean. <laughs> And the and I could not get the and he we get the butt of the gear and it's just water, and he's like, well, "Where did he fall?" I'm like, "I'm like, he's there, yeah, he's there. I know he's there." And we literally just went, followed my finger to the horizon, Holy and there shit. he is floating in the water <laughs> like this. I'm like, "Oh my god!" And if I grab him. We grab him. We Pull him up through the tuna door, right? No, right no. over to the no, side. Over the side. Was over the side? side? We just grabbed him, which was just you know kind of like picking up a wet sock. That's how much weight was there? <laughs> but we pull him in, and I started laughing hysterically because it was that nervous, yeah, like, like you're about to get a whooping. And you start laughing, laughing, and it's like I just could not control myself because it was like. He was laughing so hard he was crying. I know. It was like, like hysterical. And just as if it could not get even more triumphant, as I pull him up, his big fat wallet falls and I catch it. <laughs> I literally, and the, you know, it swells. Oh, it's yeah. not like flat. It was probably like three water. to four or so. And so, you know, it was one of those things where. We laughed our ass off. It was a, you know, an incredible experience. But you realize how close that. I mean, because you would not survive. That didn't that. come till afterwards, for me. Yeah. Like I was like, you guys got me. Like I fell over, and for, I mean, I to me it seemed like I was in the water forever. But I'm sure it was probably only fifteen minutes, maybe. Which is enough. You know. Yeah. And uh, when I. Uh, first saw you guys just kind of going off nowhere i was like oh shit you know that's it nah and, and you can't yell it's not like people right can't hear but you. then when you guys came back what happened you, you threw the uh harpoon ball to me but i couldn't grab it it was amazing how fast hypothermia set in like the warmth and then losing my muscles right. And then you guys were able to back right up and got right to me and pull me in the boat because I wasn't grabbing it, anything. It really is a blur, but I just remember that moment of that flash. I honestly don't know if that is a flash I saw in my mind or a flash I actually saw in the windshield. on the windshield. It just was like, ah, I, 
I turned around at the exact moment. I mean, how many, what is that? A second? Yeah. yeah milliseconds. Yeah. You know? I, at that exact moment, I turned around to see him in mid-flight. Um, <laughs> oh. I, didn't, I didn't realize you saw me that early. I thought you turned around and like looked and like saw no, me I, in the water. No, I, I remember I'm glad we're clearing this going all up. up. And there's honestly not much that no. has been clear. The stories the only... have matched each other pretty good. I'm yeah. impressed. Yeah. I was like, eh, it's going to be about 30% high on OG's You know what end. it is? You don't... <laughs> when it all happened, we all laughed. It's longer you know, than, it think, than you think. Jeff it tried to strip me down naked and get on top of me to stop me from having hypothermia. I wouldn't let none of that was going on. And, uh, we got back and like Wendy was there and she saw me because I changed my clothes. I had a pair of Grundens and like Hawaiian think, shorts. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah, yeah. Hawaiian flower shorts. I remember I came down and docked uh, with mom. And it was like November and they're yeah. like, "What are you doing?" And we told them the story and. It wasn't until later you realized, like, that split second that you talk about how easily you could be died. Life, yeah, especially that's, on that's the That's why water. I wrote that, when I wrote the article, I wrote it, the title was A Blink of an Eye. Yeah. Because it's that quick. Yeah. You yeah, know? and... Life and or death. How, I think that is the big, that's what I've learned living where I live, is how people take the water for granted there's nothing more treacherous and unforgiving than the ocean. Yeah. You could be going down Neilgate, hit a tree at 30 miles an hour, fall out of your car with a bloody head and get up and be like, oh my God, you have a real genuine chance of surviving that. You hit your head on your boat and fall over. You're Done. dead. Done. You, everything yeah. we take for granted, air, <laughs> temperature. Mm-hmm is a luxury on the ocean and having children on the water and seeing i i saved um first of all i tried to save a person in the south river and was unsuccessful and that person drowned which was horrible me and a neighbor oh god a couple of years ago two brothers stole a boat oh yeah i heard that story yeah we could we were at dinner it was cold foggy foggy night we could hear them screaming we couldn't get to them some guy managed to get to him from the other side in a kayak and only found one of the brothers alive. The other one had drowned. Wow. So, um, and we've had, what, 10 people drown right there in 20 years? I Probably more than that. Yeah. Probably I mean, more than that. And I had a, uh, I was by the spit once and um, this group of kids, little kids playing, swimming off the back of their boat at that flat tide. And they're all jumping in, swimming to the boat, jumping in. I'm just watching out of the corner of my eye, jumping in, swimming to the boat. And one of the kids, a little girl, maybe 13 years old uh, or 12, she jumped in. She jumped in. i watching them swim. And then I just watch her jump in, and she's swimming backwards. And then she's, and she starts screaming. And everyone is looking at her, and they are laughing, not because they don't get... They think it's a joke. Yeah. And I went, oh my God. And I jumped in and I grabbed this girl and brought her to the boat. And um, she was white and hysterical. And then suddenly the mother started crying and they realized what just almost happened. Mm. It is, and also because of COVID, so many people in the water this year. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many almost of accidents every day constantly uh 
that I see all the time. People running onto rocks. Yeah. That's why we get along good is because he sees like I see and is already activating before most people. Like that story you just told, we were at the spit one day on the the high spot. The spit's like a sandbar, basically. Yeah, Yeah, for those that don't don't know. know. And there's a reason why Uh, they don't allow alcohol anymore because they've had so many... People but it's got a very kids. steep, sandy drop-off. And, and little kids, current. they play it at low tide. So we're all sitting on the top of the high spot, right at the cliff area. And all of a sudden, I think it was my sister-in-law goes, a baby. And we look out, and just behind the boats, three, four feet behind the boat, there's a baby fly, floating face down, going down the river. I jumped over a Grady White cuddy cabin. Like over, over its it. roof, <laughs> like a freaking antelope, right? And freaking got the kid, got him up. Luckily, somehow got him before he took a breath. And he coughed a little, like, as I got his face out of the water. Got him back to the shore. The mother came up to me drunk and gave me, like, a dirty look and grabbed her kid. Five minutes later, the kid's in the water behind the boats again. Yeah, it was the most bizarre thing I yeah, ever saw in my life. People don't get it, and uh, yeah, we had a friend of ours, a friend of ours, <clears throat> daughter's boyfriend, broke his neck diving in the spit after a couple of beers and hit the shell. I mean, it's water is dangerous. It's wonderful. We're so lucky. These cold, vibrant, frothy waters is what makes all the fishing so good here. But it's also what can kill people, especially where we at. I, I had Maya once on the dock, just, she was four years old, went to step on my little tender, which was on the other side, current going this way from the marsh out, went right through, literally caught her under the dock on the other side. Oh her up. my God. <laughs> it took her two years before she would get in the boat again. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Speaking of idiots on the water, (laughs) the other day, the Coast Guard was searching for two uh, two guys that were in a rubber raft off the Situate. And they found the rubber raft floating. This was a couple days ago. And uh, it was actually washed up on the beach. Right. Yeah. So they started searching that day. I didn't know about the search that afternoon. So that night, I get a phone call, a customer. It's a guy from Maryland or something. He sells seaweed, right? And at first I thought he was like selling bales he found out of the friggin' ocean or something, you know? <laughs> it, it sounded like a joke to me, you know? And then he started explaining Irish moss and he was selling Irish moss for the food health industry. And he was 50 pounds shy for some customer that he had. So he came up here with a rubber raft to get... <laughs> Irish moss and so I didn't know about the Coast Guard searching for him he tells me a story about him going out with the Irish moss that day and I'm like dude are you insane with a regular garden rake like not a (laughs) not a mossing rake so he's like yeah he goes we didn't get very far and he goes I can't swim but you know we got all wet and cold and we left so anyway I told him the best thing to do is to talk to the lobster men and, uh, you know, maybe they can get some moss out of their traps while they're out. You know, I said, other than that, you're not going to. He wanted to charter me to go get 
50 pounds of Irish moss. So, but right. the Coast Guard was looking for him because they found his deflated raft? Correct. Yeah, they found Thinking his they raft. Did they connect the dots? And, well, no, well here's what happened. <laughs> so he calls Corey. And Corey thought I like sick somebody on him, like because the guy, the way the guy talked, it was pretty, pretty funny, and you know he thought it was a joke. And so the next morning, Corey calls me and says, "What is with this seaweed guy?" I, you know, and I, I told him what he told me, and I told him about the going on the raft. He goes, "You know, the Coast Guard's looking for somebody in a route that was in a rubber raft off of Sand Hills." So now I'm connecting the dots. So I called Sector One in Boston and, you know, told him my story. I was able to redial that guy's yeah. phone number from the office phone and connected the whole thing together. And they were able to call up the search after two days, searching for somebody in a rubber raft that wasn't in a rubber raft. You know, it's crazy. Leave it know? to leave it to old Greg to, to yeah. be the one that connects the dots <laughs> on, a, on a seaweed <laughs> yeah, hunter, a, <laughs> a seaweed hunter, the seaweed sleuth. <laughs> yeah, so that's be the new chart about. Well, anyway, Nancy hunter. Drew has nothing on. So I day. asked this guy. He sounded interesting when he was talking to me. Like it, yeah. he got smarter and smarter as the phone call went on. <laughs> so I said, dumber and dumber. I said, so how do I go? How are you processing the Irish moss like to sell it? He's like. He goes, well, I put it in pillowcases and I take it to the laundromat and dry it in the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Is that go, how they make my pillows? Yeah. Right so I, I was like, so the whole neighborhood smells like the ocean? Oh, uh, oh that's incredible. He's like, yeah, it was. My grandmother told me I should do that because I was using her dryer. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a, a Don't put out CV in grandma's tank. dryer. Yeah, no. <laughs> Oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah, but there are, you know, people don't do their homework, that's for sure. No, people don't respect. No, I mean, and it's uh, the weather, the weather, the weather. It's like. Especially up here. And, and also, it doesn't matter, too, if you're in a 24 foot boat or you're in a 30 foot boat. If it's a bad day on the ocean, it's a bad day on the ocean. Unfortunately, oftentimes, those edgy days are the best fishing days. Little nervous oh, yeah. water is gets to. It's always like that. The day you want to be the best fishing day, that clear glass flat never water is. Is the know, day rarely, the day we had. It day doesn't matter how much knowledge you have either. You make that mistake and go into those situations. I mean, like I was the captain. I fell off the boat. Uh, a buddy of ours who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, climbed K two. Uh, was they basically in Africa called him the last great white hunter because he was going all the time. He was like a Kurt Gowdy type. Went out on an annual duck hunting trip down in Narragansett Bay with his buddies, and they did this every year, and two of them died, and one of them ended up making it under the luckiest circumstances. You know, somehow the, a med flight helicopter saw him on the beach, like... And the other two had died, you know, like any other person seeing them, he probably would have never lived, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, just working in the water, getting your hands cold, how useless your hands become mm -hmm. and how distracting that pain is of like cold hands or cold feet. We had days fishing in November where we were out in the cockpit, jigging a string of mackerel 
unhooking the string of mackerel, passing the rod to the next guy, running in, warming your hands. You were only able to get warm enough to jig one string of bait at a time. It's crazy how fast you can get cold. And just how quick, quick, crazy it changes. Like, you'll leave, I'll leave our little island and, you know, ready for a hot day. And just cloud cover change. It's like freezing cold mm. in July or August. It's a wind tunnel right there, yeah. too. It is right here, too, because it comes like, runs right down the river. And right here, like, that side of the house gets a breeze every afternoon. And you go half mile away and it's, you know, Nothing. hot again. Yeah. I how like that, though. How many times have you fished with us now? Yeah. It's got to be a lot cl- of times. Close to be. A, the last trip it, was great. The last trip was, was a great. Trip. It was awesome. So weather kind of sucked, but the fishing was awesome. What? I don't remember it being that sucky. Well, no, it wasn't the weather rough. was. It was just foggy and right. wet. I remember, and it, it was, was active. It was the kind of Very weather active. where when you're going out, yeah, you're like, I know. This is this it's is exciting. It, Some know? customers don't like that though. Yeah, that was a great day. Oh, that was a very active day. I love, I love when you say that. That was an active day. Oh I like it when you're in the fog and then they just come out of nowhere right at you, you know, oh, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. I hate it when you're in the fog moving and you see something coming at your radar really fast. I'm like, oh, like you're going slow. And I'm like, yeah, they don't got radar. And then nope. out pops Jiffy Chow I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. coming right at you. Uh, <laughs> Everybody still talks about the day that you lost your, your uh, fighting belt. Oh, that's such oh, yeah. a good story. <laughs> that is so such a good story. Uh, what happened? My fighting, bar- my fighting belt. Like his harness. Oh, weren't you yeah. going around asking for it? Like I, I said on the radio and someone found it. Well, it was like, it was one of those days where it was like 35 guys anchored up on Peacot Hill in a big long line and 25 guys trolling on either side and big lines of people, a bunch of people. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, whether you were fighting a fish and the bell fell overboard yeah. or something. Like, so he calls me on the radio, obviously the public channel, and everybody, uh, like, oh, and all of a sudden, Frank, you've had Frank on the show. Yeah, Frank Pitton. He found the, uh, the, belt the bell. floating, floating. So now we're trying to describe to Jeff <laughs> which boat has the belt. <laughs> So he basically it just turned out that he just went down the line to everybody. Everybody anchored you know, up. Hey, you Frank? Hey, you Frank? No, you're hey, not Frank. <laughs> and it was pretty funny. It made for a good radio show that day. Oh, that's unbelievable. I love those radio shows of people. Like, oh, yeah. Sometimes it's funny as hell. Oh, that's amazing. It's amazing how busy it's. See, that's why I don't tuna fish that much anymore because I, it's too crowded. It gets it too is. crowded. It became too. What's your favorite type of fishing to do up here now? In mass, if you're gonna go, you know, bring. I have reconnected with my love for striped bass fishing. Just, I, it, it just comes very easy for me. I always have good luck, and it's he something lives in the best place in the world. Yeah, to catch you can them. do it right there, and um, whether it's walking out to my hips in a bathing suit off the rocks or getting in my boat. Um, I've dialed that in really good that I just enjoy it. And then we'll say, okay, you know, I want to move around, see what else I can find. I became obsessed with tuna fishing a few years ago. And then, I mean, one year caught tuna after tuna. That was that year where you got really nice different classes. Then one year it was just all giants. Seven, 2007, eight, and nine what, is when you put the most time in. Yeah. And it was just catching fish all the time. Um, <clears throat> 
but the uh, the there was just the big fish, which you, you couldn't keep or you lost gear. Yeah, and then it became a madhouse that you had to be the first one there, and it became super territorial. I'm like, eh. that's the commercial thing when yeah. it goes down, you know. I mean, this, when now when we've had on days, off days, or on weeks, off weeks. You go on those off weeks where it's just the recreational guys, pretty much everybody's courteous, spreads out. It's awesome. There's not a quarter of the boats out there. And it's also kind of this thing where uh, I think also the fish have become statistically, they seem like they're going to be really big fish most of the time, which is a little too big for my gear now. Which is historically how the fishery's been here right. is with big fish. You know, right. those runs of small ones have been. We're gonna they're gonna come back though. Yeah. The cycle's ready to turn back. They're a, a, supposedly a low count of small ones this year, which probably means there's a high count of big ones. There's gonna be a lot of breeding, and then the small ones will start coming back. And da 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 da. Yeah, it always does. Get back on the cycle. Yeah, you know? and I it's like anything. You get in it, you're out it, it like. And this year, I, I mean, I, I fished every day this summer, only to tuna, you know, maybe a dozen times. Really did not have much success. It was kind of weird. I'd get out there and, uh, and that was the other thing. I was always used to having success. And got to get out there before 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, I know. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I just, sometimes those, big fish, those big fish are hard to troll, too. Yeah, so the, the, yeah. the yeah. tactics. big the ones tactics. around, they're, they're tough to troll. So, you, you did the best trolling. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, my boat that I have now, which I love my boat, I mean, that is designed just for fishing and diving. Tuna fishing or striped bass fishing or diving. Uh, I, I'm going to upgrade. And also, I dived a lot more this year. Mm. So once I got into that, doing that every day, it does take a lot out of you. And it's such a, you know, you get in the water and you're coming back with, you know, 10 lobsters, mm. you know, a couple of bit, you know, a big tatog. It's like, that's a good day in the water. Yeah. Um, but I think there were a couple of times getting out there. I was like, you think you're the first one out there and the sun comes up. I'm like. Man, yeah. <laughs> look at all these people. Boats, I know. It's like a suit. I got a good one for you to try next year. Dive and catch a striper on a, on a rod. Underwater. I've done Underwater. That. Have you done it? Have you? I never, yeah. I, I used to go out <laughs> in my wetsuit, my Hendrix wetsuit, with my flippers, with a live eel at night. With the headlamp, my and diving light. You, you didn't dive at night. <laughs> yeah, but well you weren't. You didn't have a tank and everything. You're standing on. up right uh, now, I'm getting something, a picture. It's showing proof. No, you got to be underwater, in a tank with a fishing rod, <laughs> and you can use a chunk if you want to start drifting the chunks. Back. I think we need to do a, a turn. Diver Tom did it. I think we need to do OG versus Jeff Corwin underwater fishing adventure. Subsea rod and reel com. fishing. Um, <clears throat> So I would get in the water, swim out with the tide, and let it take me along the rocks from my dock down, and then float like this. (laughs) 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 One of the most treacherous treacherous inlets in the world. And, um, (laughs) And I had phenomenal success. And then I would... Because, you know, when you come around and you get towards the marsh, it kind of 
water flattens it eddy, out. It eddies out right there. And then there. I would kick in, take off my flippers, run to the top with the eel, and just float it. And that eel, to be able to swim naturally like that, yeah. it was... And then you, you catch you, a big fish. You come out by the lady that saw the sea monster that night? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> that was, that was funny. funny. I know I have a picture of, that, of doing that. And I did that. My wife's like, that's going to stop. That's not going <laughs> to... That's not going to work. I mean, it might, it'd be one thing during the daytime so she could keep an eye on you. But in the no, it's a nighttime. Hey, yeah. Right there in front of his house, but on the other side, the other spit, the Hummer Rock side. Yeah. I was in my little Sears Game Fisher with my buddy one night, and we're buzzing. The tide's coming through, and then I'm cruising along, and I'm looking at the beach. You know how you look at that edge of the beach to follow yeah. the river? And I'm looking at that beach and buzzing along, and I kind of look over in the boat. From me to Jeff away, we go by this guy behind him. Like we're we're closer that to the beach awesome. than he is, right? And I almost ran him over, right? And it was like, holy crap! And the guy's like, hey, hey! I'm like, hey, hey! You know, you know, I can't see you. You look like a telephone pole or something. No, I don't know who it was. I was younger. I was. I was. You were too young. I'm sure. He just showed. That's go. coming out of the water with the stripes. He just showed us Look the proof. Him. Light. He's got the uh, wetsuit on. That's a good leader. Size fish. That is a nice. Showing us a picture. He looks like he's about twenty years younger than he is right now. <laughs> well, not twenty. A lot's changed. Oh, that's incredible. Um, what's the scariest animal you ever gotten? We already oh, did that. We already did that. It's too late. Yeah. What questions? What the other humans. questions? I heard you've had good experiences with monkeys, though. We already did that. Already did already monkeys. Already did that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, right, keep going. We'll, we'll pull a freshie out of your uh, <laughs> your question bank. One thing, one question I did have for you, and you've already told me one story um, over a bottle or two of wine is uh, <laughs> what's the weirdest thing you've eaten? Oh, <laughs> weirdest things. We, plural. We've eaten a lot of weird things. And, you know, I should qualify that. So I had a show on Food Network for a couple of seasons, which was all about, it was called Extreme Cuisine. And it was about exploring culture through food and and stuff like that. And our caveat was always it had to be sustainable and a real resource. It couldn't be like some freaky thing that was, you know, you know unethical or something like that. So there are a lot of things I wouldn't eat based Babies. on... Well, like shark fin soup or (laughs) bird soup, shark fin soup or something like that because of the unsustainability of that. But probably, I mean, we've eaten a lot of weird stuff. I mean, I've eaten insects. I've eaten, like in Thailand, they do this thing called jumping shrimp. And it's just literally live shrimp with lime juice and chilies. And it's just... It's in your mouth alive and you're eating it. It's like or, shrimp pop rocks. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, raw, giant Japanese oysters that are this oh, big. Oh, I actually want a gag. It's, they, it's just oh, too much. Dude, I could eat like a whole one down <laughs> gone, but like to have to bite it like a burger. Oh, it's I couldn't burger. deal with it. I ate a lot of weird stuff. I think, but the grossest thing I ever ate, I mean, there's been a lot of like fermented things. Like anything that's like from the ocean fermented is a tough sell. Like fermented fish. It's like, that's that's just rotten fish. Um, Anything that smells like low tide or instant bad breath, you don't want to eat. Yeah. But the grossest thing actually that I never liked was called, I think it was called panales. 
which are it's um, cactus paddles in, in Mexico, and it's just so slimy. But we've eaten like um, like ant eggs, corn smut, which is like in Mexico they grow this <laughs> corn like fungus. We've eaten also a lot of that stuff is is really really good. Eat a lot of weird stuff in in Asia and stuff. Um, ate prosebus in Spain, which are giant goose barnacles. They're, they're like considered a delicacy. What? And they're just, they're huge. And it literally tastes like you're eating a lobster tail. Wow. That sounds and amazing. they're like at Christmas time. Wait, you just like extract them from the... It's, act- called the-, the, the, it's called the Costa del Muerte, the coast of death. They strap you into the rungs. You jump off these cliffs with like a chisel and a bucket. And you chisel them up and then you they pull them up. And it's mostly women that do it, and it's like very valuable. Send them off the cliff. Send them off. <laughs> what the is cliff. it again? It's called presebes. It's, wh- it's a goose barnacle, a big giant goose barnacle. A barnacle. Yeah, a barnacle. And yeah. it grows out Google of the water, or they grows on die the down in the water. It together. grows on on the, the rocks that the water touches every once in a while. <clears throat> That's crazy, like a lobster tail. It's not surprising though, like like a shellfish meat and stuff mm. you know i could see that well they climb those cliffs for the bird shit the no whatever. bird nests the nests <laughs> i love i love when you guys hang out because he just you that. guys fact check each other the whole time well it's mostly oh. jeff fact checking dad <laughs> so that's what they look like like a goose interesting huh. but they're giant they're like Three, four inches. So when you pull them out, you're actually getting a, so a good a, amount of meat. that's the thing that's in it? No, that's basically the whole barnacle. So there's the little part that opens yeah, okay. up. It's, and, it's, and this is where it would yeah, attach to the rock. Attaches, so you boil them, and they twist open. Hmm. And it's really... It's actually very delicious. You know, it's like, oh, that's a lot better than I thought it would be. Hmm. Kind of like a first girl I had. <laughs> I'm not, even going there. I'm not even going. That was her nickname, Goose yeah. Barnacle. <laughs> Goose Barnacle. <laughs> um, uh, what about here? So we've had, like we mentioned, we've had elk that you've you know hunted. We've had all kinds of things. Been fortunate enough to have all kinds of cool stuff that you've harvested yourself. But what's your favorite? One of my favorite things to do that my wife, I love to like. Well, I love to die for lobsters. Mm. I love cat. There's something about catching a lobster underwater and you know you'll find 20 or 30 lobsters in a dive you'll be lucky if you get six of them or five of them they have to be the right size they can't be too big you'll be surprised how many lobsters are too big Hmm. can't be too small and they can't have eggs will that shrink when you come back and you you know get enough lobsters I, i just i love lobster and that's always a lot of fun but something i love digging for clams and stuff, but I love um, foraging for wild mushrooms. And my wife is from Eastern Europe, and she knows all about mushrooms. And we'll go out and forage, and we have found like really premium European quality, like porcini's. We have found um, uh, chanterelles, morels right here, uh, and no one has any idea. There's, no one, there's chicken of the woods every year. Chicken go right of the woods, in my front yard, and that's kind of like. That's a Walmart mushroom. I'm more okay. like a, you're like a high grade. Yeah. High grade. I'm, I'm, I'm Nordstrom's mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you ever uh, picked the wrong mushroom? No, and I've never. So 
there's a lot of have you ever so, picked the right mushroom? No. <laughs> All the mushrooms are healthy, illegal. So there's a saying about mushrooms. There are old mushroom collectors and there are bold mushroom collectors, but there are no old, bold mushroom collectors. <laughs> so you never take a chance. So there are certain groups of mushrooms, like the bolets, where the bolets are like the porcini mushrooms. Uh, they're the classic European-looking mushroom. They don't have a gill at the bottom. It's what we call a polypore bottom underneath the cap. So you know in that group, in New England, there are no uh, poisonous bullets. There are some that aren't edible, that may make you sick if they're too old, but there's nothing that's going to kill you. There are no um, poisonous tree mushrooms in Massachusetts. Mm. When you start getting... And there's also these group of mushrooms where... Um, that's a very sad dog, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Riley's, Riley's been whining, wanting to be a part of this the whole time. <laughs> and um, so there's some mushrooms where it's like people, it becomes like a fetish or a challenge. Like there's, there are these amanta, amanted mushrooms, um, what they call the death angel mushrooms. You know, so if something has the name death, <laughs> death angel, angel, you probably shouldn't probably you should with it. steer like away from gorilla it. Panic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gorilla panic. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, like I would stay from like the Colombian necktie, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but there's mushroom. There's a mushroom that looks just like it. That's perfectly edible and delicious. And it's like people like they get and like count the spores and to take. Yeah, the, I'm good with it's that. Like, it's like nah, I'll stick with the. There's twenty reliable chicken of the woods, as you mentioned, hen of the woods. That once you figure out what they are. They don't have dop- deadly doppelgangers. They're like, so, and there's something about cooking fresh wild mushrooms. I love mushrooms, you know, with game meat and stuff like that. It's pretty delicious. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I don't a think true, I'm, a I, true outdoorsman. Any cool tribes, fishing village tribes, or yeah, interesting a lot of cultures stuff. you've encountered that you're like, that just don't have any clue that we exist? Well, those days are pretty much gone, um, but there are still places in the world where people live traditionally, um, and that's always neat, especially when they fish traditionally, like in French Polynesia, with the way they, they, they'll um, go underwater and actually corral fish under, by making noises with rocks and to fish that way. Wow. Um, fishing um, off of a, like a you know, dugout canoe in the Amazon, you fishing for giant pudataku and giant catfish in the Amazon. I, I actually caught, with a group of guys in Thailand a few years, I caught the world's largest freshwater fish ever caught, which what? was freshwater. You didn't know that? No. Yes. It was a stinger, right? Are you a, stinger, stinger, right? Are you a record stinger. holder? Dude, I am. I'll pull, I'll no pull this way. up on freshwater Instagram right now. Jeremy James? Jeremy James. Jeremy, Jeremy Wade. Jeremy Wade. Jeremy James. Jeremy James. <laughs> he claimed that for a while. He's a, Jeremy James is a porn star. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if he's not, he should be. Um, yeah, we could. At, at that time, I, I only know it was world record because I was sound asleep, but I got a call from like the London Times wanting to know about the fish we caught. I was like, what? And it just went viral. Wow. It was 11 feet long and weighed 800 pounds or at least... Um, it was huge. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I have had a chance to fish with some traditional folks and it's pretty cool. 
again, though, it's very surprising around the world how how much you notice re- regional fishing populations have collapsed hmm. in a lot of places. Even right here in Situate. You know? I mean, just a commercial. It's gone from 35 draggers in the harbor to five or three, you know? I mean, when I was a little kid, the harbor was full of them. Now there's none. Dude, you look know? at the size of this stingray. I think the... Uh, oh, my God. What did that eat? What did you catch it on? It just sucked. Uh, we caught it on bait and a, caught in a big oh, giant yeah. reel. And wow. That's so cool. it for five hours. That thing is they huge. suck on the bottom. Yeah. And you have to break the seal and kind of plane them up mm. like that. And the, the, the barb on it, it's this long. Nice. Two, three feet. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's this long. Um, and this was in the Meklong Freshwater River. I mean, 100 miles from the ocean, freshwater species. Hmm. But, Where was that in what, Thailand? Thailand. But, uh, I mean, a lot. that to me is like a lot of places. It's like they have, oh, well, we just don't catch those fish anymore, which makes you think about, you know, managing fish, fish and stuff like that. Uh, they just collapsed reefs. I mean, it sounds like, as far as countries go, we're probably doing a fairly decent job then. Well, I mean... I, you can't beat fishing in North America when it comes to our variety. Right. You know, what New England has to offer, what Alaska has to offer. There's nothing like Alaska for fishing incredible salmon, trout. Halibut. Halibut. Our freshwater fisheries in North America. It's like I always like watch something like in Australia, and it's like, yeah, get on my, get on my fishing for this little, I'm like all that work for this, this fish, right? You know, fishing some weird, you know, wrasse. Mm. Like I want catch bluefish or striped bass or. I will. I will say, you know, as far as variety, from what I've seen, read places that we fish, there's there's some places with comparable variety. It's the accessibility that we have in North, in North America and specifically the Northeast, we can catch so many different big fish in a relatively close distance to shore, you know? And, and that doesn't even include oh, like in reach anyway. Yeah. Think about like Louisiana, redfish, you know, amazing saltwater fisheries, um, Wahoo, uh, all the, uh, um, the yellowfin tuna. Mm, marlin fishing, great Marl- fish in there. We have incredible fishing, you know, in, in the United States. And while, while New England, we have our challenges like everybody else. I think it, it is a far more manageable challenge we have here than other places. I don't feel like, oh, well, that's gone forever. You know, mm. I feel like, okay, maybe this is just a little blip in the radar screen and we'll adjust. Maybe we change our hooks or we do this. People don't forget, like, 35 years ago, you could not keep a striped bass under 38 inches, right? It wasn't that long ago, but... Yeah, but was, I'm sorry, in my it life. It was before yeah. I fished. You've also been doing it longer than twice well, when as long I was as anyone at this table for the most part. 15, 16, the only rule was 16 inches to sell a striper. Mm. Right. No permits required. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it went to 36 inches. Mm. Like well, they probably, it probably damaged. Oh, yeah, but it was all about money. You know, everybody, yeah. they were scooping them with draggers. They were, you know, I mean... 
It was all about money at the time. And same thing with, as soon as you take the money factor away, then whatever fishery it was comes back. You know, it's, you know, and it's nothing against guys that commercial fish. It's, we do. That's a way of right. life, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's how we make money. It's how a lot of guys, but the the dollar value, like you're talking going to third world countries that don't really have many regulations. The problem why they overfish it like that is it is their source of income. Right. It's what also else are they, they going to do? A lot of fish. Yeah. Right? Mm. Nothing, I, mean, I mean, fish is like the 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 meal of the day. Yeah. Um, and they eat it all the time. They eat dry, and they eat a lot of fish fish parts that we wouldn't eat. So they're taking advantage. It's no waste, which is the other side of it. Um, but and also just the impact, for example, on what I see around the world on plastic waste. It is incredible the amount of plastics you see in places like Southeast Asia, India. You go to the beach and every day before they clean the beach, it's as far as the eye can see, waves are covered with plastic. That has an impact. That impact affects everyone, even our waters here. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, that's something we need to figure out is plastics. I think our biggest challenge in New England when it comes to the striped bass fishing, I think anglers need to be educated on how to manage their fish better. Yes. I watch all the time. I'm, I'll be losing it with my binoculars. And I'll be like, <laughs> Natasha, I'm like, that fish is dead. Yep. She said, what do you mean? I said, that guy caught that fish and he passed it to his son. And then he's passed it to his son. It's been out of the water for two minutes. They're friggin' reaching down, grabbing There's blood. I'm like, that fish is gone. Mm-hmm. They must and just then they're keep throwing it, it in. They, they throw it up, it. just floats away. They don't do anything to recondition it back. There'll always be some level of mortality, but there's no. I mean, I watched a guy across, you know, the water on the other side by Hummerock, literally catch this beautiful striped bass and walks it up. So it's going over the rocks, onto the sand. Knocking all the slime off. Then off. he steps on it, reaching in there. I'm like, you just killed that six-year-old fish. That's problem. I think that's a much bigger problem than people realize. Mm. And I think education and accountability will fix that a lot. I mean, maybe the changing of these hooks will make a big difference. I, I think they do. I'm not mm. too sure. I just started using them last year. We, yeah. We've been trying to do, I mean... We've been fortunate enough to fish for tuna in a lot of different places, specifically bluefin. And, you know, we've talked about this in other podcasts before, but, you know, up in Canada, there's regulations for handling fish, hooking fish, fighting fish in a proper way. And we've been trying to, you know, push that into our own fishery because right. of things and all, like and that all that the we've species seen. That were, you know, last year, to the point that we had to release all these big slob fish up in Boston Harbor. Our, one of our sister boats, uh, Power Play, he was going as far as like these 40, 50 pound class fish. He was actually swimming them, reviving them with a little swim hook like we use for tuna. But he was, you know, casting, catching them on top water, whatever. Yeah, 15 them minute up, fight with the and client. And like yeah. actually swimming them. It sounds ridiculous. No, but it makes but, perfect but it makes sense. A huge, well, I think it makes an impact every little. I took a lot of people fishing this year in my boat, and one of the rules I had, one of the things I tried, not a rule, I said, I try to keep the fish in the water. Once you start taking that fish out of the water, 
the t- the clock starts ticking. Mm-hmm. Keep it in the water, especially if you know what it is right. and it's going to be released fish. Right. You got your. You could take a picture if you once you. It's like me putting you in the water. Your clock is ticking. Once I start holding you under the water, you hold that fish above water. Just to, it re- it decreases that stress. But I think that's it. The other thing is, you know, the fish we have here have a connection to other parts of our country. So, you know. And the, the world. Maryland management and Maryland and Chesapeake will impact our fish in mm-hmm. a huge way. So when you start seeing like multiple, like I fished a little bit in Rhode Island this year, you see states having the same rules. It's great because you don't go to one state to cheat. Um, and also it's a, it's a, a, a common management system mm-hmm. so everybody has good you know standards and practices yeah yep yeah no it's super important you know reviving fish properly the release lines i mean we're been really trying to push hard through the podcast and through you know what we've been doing on the boat to as much as we can as much as we can like try to standardize that amongst people that are going out you know Catching and releasing big bass now that we have the slot limit. Catching and releasing big tuna fish, you know, doing it the right way. I mean, that's a yeah. I don't. I think I only thing. I only kept one striper last year, and it was like for a reason. My wife was like, "Oh, we should cook a striper tonight for dinner with friends or whatever." I'm like, okay, and that was like I think the one fish I caught that year. Mm-hmm. I kept that year. I caught a lot of fish last year. Just now, a lot of fish were either. A couple of them were too big or they were too small. Um, but it just, I don't have that interest, especially with stripers. I'm re- I've really grown to appreciate how lucky we are to have them and how maybe they're more vulnerable than, and I know a lot of people that, you know, don't want rules and they don't want regulations. And I understand where that comes from. And I, no one wants to be overregulated and overruled, especially by a bureaucrat that knows nothing about fishing, but we want this resource. We want it. And you start noticing things. It's like, why did last year I do this really well? And this year I'm catching a lot of this, but I'm not catching. That's because there might, it must've been an impact if not here somewhere else. Being able to manage that in a way that that resource is always there, I think is very, very, very critical. I couldn't agree more. And it takes people like you who have seen a lot of different things and have the time on the water and have the hundreds and thousands of striped bass under your belt to kind of show, you know, what you truly need to get out of that resource and get out of that fish, get out of that whatever. You know, not everyone has that experience. So every single fish they do catch, they're trying to kill and eat and they don't see the Yeah, a lot of it's like, it's like, okay, five guys go out. It's like, well maybe it's just a couple of fish you need i mean really i think if you're taking striped bass and you're putting it in the freezer you might as well go not, to the supermarket not not for me yeah. you know, unless you're like, gonna smoke it and make like a dip or yeah. something but maybe if you're gonna it, eat it something fresh, like that or yeah. you know cod is something that can freeze well or, ground it's fish. like freezing striped bass i'm like well why f- eat the fish freezing Let it go. T- freezing tuna you know is what? a go sin up. to me what yeah freezing tuna i've is never frozen it yeah it's it's immediately bad in my you know if, if you try to do it yourself if it's not immediately fresh flash frozen whole fish like they're doing overseas 
But to take a loin and freeze it, unless you were doing Especially it one Especially bluefin. It's waste. It's a yeah. waste. And you tell it comes out, it looks like tin. Yeah. Brown. There's looks so like the color of this table. There's too, though, that affect like, what happens with fish. Like The stripe is like the white sharks. Definitely, completely changed. I have, I have no doubt. Yeah. Peacock Hill, there are no more stripers anymore. They just don't. You know, go I didn't there catch anymore. one striper this year. I went yeah. there a lot. I, I think it's because of the sharks and yeah. those smaller and sharks. That's Billings, what they feed them. Billingsgate's yeah. getting mowed by them too. I mean, there's like so many videos of people reaching down to grab their bass, and a white shark comes breaching up on them. You know, so I mean, there's a lot of variables there. There is, and the know? seals. Yeah. Seals are I've seen the seals. I see a seal, I turn around. I don't bother. We caught, several, we caught several bass on the river this with year bites. with seal scars. Remember yeah. down the we were Peacock Hill, and we were chasing bass running, and seals by the hundreds following right behind the bass, just like a herd. Yeah. Like it looked like tuna chasing bass. Yeah. And, you know, every once in a while, you'd, one would be stopped with a big bass in its mouth, and... The rest of the herd kept going. Yeah, know? it's also, and people want things to be perfect. Oh, if this is a, you know, make nature is Eden and the predators come. Look, I love predators. I love di- the dynamic nature of, of a wild ecosystem. But it isn't, you know, it, it isn't munchkin land. Right. You know, shit gets eaten and killed. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's an unfair, cruel world that's only meant for the fittest with regard to the survival of individuals within a species, there's no room for the weak. And I think there is a tremendous value and there's something very exciting to see, to see uh, a, a return of creatures that were not there when we were growing. I mean, I never saw seals growing up. Now you see that, you know. I think it's cool the, too. The yeah. But that does not mean that we're always going to be happy with the outcomes. It doesn't mean we always should be happy with the outcome, no. but there are consequences that come with, because we are an apex predator. So now we are competing with other apex predators. Yeah. And whoever thought you would see, I mean, look, I'll tell you, I've gone down to Humrock and you see all those gray seals. It's like, I'm done. You know, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. You're not going to catch right. anything. Um. And then you see more white sharks, and you see the great seal population. So it's it's it certainly is an ebb and flow. It really is. Well, Raleigh needs to go out. Raleigh needs to pee. We've been going for two hours. This has been awesome. Yeah, we'll um, have to do this cool. Again. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Awesome. I think, thanks, uh, Jiffy. My, my yeah, pleasure. Thanks, Jiffy Chow. Um, <laughs> real quick. Well, not real quick. Take as long as you want. But how do people follow what you have going on currently? So uh, I have a series on ABC called Ocean Treks, and um, that's every Saturday on ABC. Very popular series. Uh, Facebook, Wild Corwin. Instagram, Wild Corwin. Twitter, Wild Corwin. We've got about a little over half a million people follow us and stick with us with all our adventures. And uh, that's how you can find me. New, ho- hopefully, a new series coming out this year co- about all about New England wildlife and nature. Uh, hopefully, that stays in course. That'd be sweet if it yeah. does. Um, do you want to sign us off, OG, with your three words of wisdom? You want me to give up our secrets? Not the not the last one. You know the one not to give up. Okay. Yep. 
go with your own instincts. Yep. Right? Uh, Hooks. <laughs> He's thinking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying not to say the secret. Again. All right, signing off with the, the three, three things you should always keep in mind. Yeah. If you don't have a hook in the water, you can't catch a fish. Go with your own instincts and stay the fuck away from me. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tight, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Seabros Fishing Podcast. One thing we wanted to mention, the Castafari Offshore Seminar Series for 2021. This is a series of presentations from February 25th through April 1st, I believe. Um, It's every Thursday at 7 p.m. There's a keynote speaker or keynote speakers for each session. Uh, Tommy is actually presenting on daytime sword fishing on the 4th of March. Mark DeCabia, who was on one of our recent episodes, he has a couple of presentations, but specifically he's doing one on big eyes on February 25th. He kicks off the seminar series and, uh, and Taylor and I will be presenting on um, fishing the bay and Stellwagen Bank for Bluefin on the 18th of March. There's other speakers, a lot of other great topics. If you're interested in signing up, you can visit castafari.com slash fishing dash seminar. You can sign up there, read about the guests, read about the, the speakers and the presentations and, and, um, and join for what's what's going to be a great time. Um, it's certainly a great way to break up the, the winter months up here in the Northeast. So make sure you check out the Castafari offshore seminar series for 2021. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Seabros fishing podcast. We just want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Mass Bay guides, Costa sunglasses, deep apparel, LT marine products, and Black Oak LED. Make sure you guys check out all those companies, the websites we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, in the description of this episode. Take advantage of the promo codes that we have through the podcast and um, and support our, our partners and support the show. For the latest content, uh, podcast info, fishing reports, general updates, please make sure that you check us out and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Seabros Fishing, Mass Bay Guides, or our personal accounts, MBG Taylor and MBG Brian. Um, if you have ideas for podcast topics, podcast guests, you know, where they're on there all the time, very responsive. Please don't hesitate to to reach out and um and uh shoot the breeze with us if you if you want to talk fishing or if you want to just brainstorm on the podcast. Um, also, if you are interested in getting some Seabros swag, uh, maybe one of our Tuna Mark patch hats that seem to be pretty popular. Uh, we came out with buffs this year that have like a wolf pack on them that are pretty cool, like a wolf pack of tuna or whatever fish species that you like to mark on your fish finder. Uh, those are also available at the Seabros website. So just visit seabrosfishing.com right there on the front page. You can uh, scroll through the the gallery of products that we offer uh, so far. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening and stay tight.